listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. You're listening to an edited recording of the virtual Goldstein Small Business Summit that took place on the 27th of January, 2022. Welcome everyone to the first of our community forums and thank you for taking the time to be here. Please don't hesitate to give us your account of running a small business during the pandemic and particularly your experience during this latest surge. Now the purpose of this community forum is to listen, to canvas experiences and to hear your views on potential strategies and solutions and we will run further forums along similar lines looking at broader economic and also social issues in the coming weeks and months. Now I am at home in COVID isolation having had COVID this week and I know you all well understand the risks which is why this is a virtual forum and I dearly hope that we can have some face-to-face events in the very near future. As you know I'm running as the community-backed independent candidate for Goldstein because I see a need to do politics differently and to give our community a genuine and sincere voice in Canberra. My Key pillars are economically focused climate policy, transparent economic management, that means no more rorts, integrity and genuine equality and safety for women. And as we begin our campaign in earnest after the summer period, I hope you understand that I don't have all the answers, but I am here to ask questions, to listen, to formulate strategy based on your priorities and to then advocate on your behalf. Sue is standing by to receive your comments and thoughts via the chat box. And please make it known if you would like to say something on camera. We'll run this session until about 8.15, depending on how much you would all like to add to the conversation. Now, as Sue said, I'm joined by a panel of guests who have generously given their time to help illuminate what's happening in small business in Goldstein and also via Peter strong around the country. So please welcome Tess Hines, Max Shutkin, Peter Miglick, Narelle Pezzavento, Eric Zimmerman and Peter Strong. Thank you so much everyone for taking the time to be with us on a Thursday evening in January. Now I'd like to canvas some of your experiences during the pandemic. Tess, if I could start with you, just give us a little pricey of what it's been like running your business um, how the last month or two have played out and, and just sort of what that experience has been like for you as a small business person. Well, Zoe, it's, it's been tricky. Um, the last two years, obviously, it's changed a lot. Um, we were lucky enough as a small business to be deemed an essential service. So we were able to, to continue working throughout the lockdowns. Um, without our massage therapists and our uh, studio that we'd just built. Um, but I guess the, the, the last few months have, have actually been the, the most difficult to manage. I think once, once we opened up, that's when things became, I guess, most difficult for us as clinicians um, for the first time, we were faced with um, well, where we're going to get the virus, and at that point, it was it was Delta. Um, I was 
I tried my hardest to source rapid tests as quickly as I could um, for the safety of our patients and also our staff. Um, and I think it, it sort of, we were, we were very protected through the lockdowns and, um, you know, wearing our PPE, doing what we could. But I think with, with the opening up, it was just, wow, okay, we're, we're going to all be getting Delta. So um, that was, that was, you know, interesting to sort of manage through. And um, I guess we started to, to have the odd um, Delta case come through the clinic. And, and that's when we had to sort of, you know, manage staff anxieties as well. Uh, it, it, that varied greatly. We had um, some staff members, you know, be, be really sort of, oh my gosh, you know, the patient wants us to have a deep clean. And, you know, if someone walked into a, a class situation, you know, we had the door open, we had distancing, there were two patients on reformer beds. Um, you know, one person had COVID, you know, we, we had to notify patients or do all the, the, the processes. But at that point, you know, if we were to undertake a, a deep clean, it would have been $2,500 for our business to do. Mm. And, and at that point, we'd started to get um, probably two or three patients through a week um, who were then close contacts with the physios. And I think that that meant that the physio then had to furlough until the PCR results came back. We had to obviously, every patient we deep clean, we have to clean the beds after everyone we see. So that was that was the difficult part for us and I think once once Omicron sort of took took hold um it, we we all went down very fast as in I I haven't had it um my kids have had it um and I've had to furlough pretty much most of Christmas and um with them and um and also waiting for my own PCR tests but um we've had a lot of staff who were working with different sports teams they went down with it quite early with the sports teams. So there was a point where we, we didn't have um, a lot of staff able to, to um, do their, their, their treatment. So, and I think receptionists as well, we were down to one receptionist over Christmas. So that, that was. So what, that, so what that does that mean, Tess? I mean, can you, can you run the business? Can you continue to operate? How do you cover those gaps? Are you putting patients Look, off? How, how is that working yeah. in practice? Look, I, I actually probably had to cancel I, three weeks worth of my own patients, which is huge, huge amounts of, of revenue just personally. But um, I guess with each physio or, or massage therapist or, or podiatrist, or you're looking at not just days, but I guess, you know, a week plus if they're positive, but if they're waiting for PCR tests, it's a week plus as well. So that's obviously been really difficult um so that's where we are at the moment where we've we have run out of rapid tests and now just get a, we've just got a whole new batch in but I guess I, and I can speak about this later but I, I found it really um quite tricky to to um the, the changing sort of uh landscape with regards to um, isolation and and that the how long should we be in isolation for how long does the virus last you know mm -hmm. I'm trying to make sure that my patients are safe and I'm not going to expose them to any risk especially my older patients um, you know if I was to furlough a physio for seven days 
they're still testing positive at seven, day seven, and sometimes day eight. So, you know, I just have to say, I don't want you in until day 10, mm. until you've got a clear rapid mm. test, you know, is, is that the right thing? We still don't really know, but mm. it feels like the right thing for my 86 year old patient, you know? So that that's been, that's been difficult. And I, I guess there is no, I mean, hopefully there's an end in sight, but, but it's, it's, tricky to know are we going to get more variants you know hard hard yeah. to know the, this mm. question of what the rules are versus what's reasonable I think is quite an interesting one as someone who has had COVID who's um, in effect free tomorrow I'm still wary mm. of going out into the community thinking well but maybe I'm still infectious so I feel like I want to have a, a negative rat before I uh, proceed to be seeing people, especially older people or more vulnerable people. Mm. Max, can I come to you? You, you run a very different business to, to Tess. T take us through, and it's quite a new business as well. Um, so you sort of took the plunge at, at a time which, which has then proved to be very challenging. What, what sort of challenges have you had? Um, well, yeah, I opened the business several months pre-COVID. So the challenges have been from the beginning, essentially. Um, the last two years, I guess, the biggest challenges were going in and out of lockdown and being a food business, once again, um, as previously mentioned, we were essential services, so we were allowed to trade, which was great. Um, but being in Bayside, having a five-kilometre radius meant that most of my clientele were in Port Phillip Bay. Um, so there was not a huge number of people that were accessible to me in the 5k radius and stopping and starting the new, the rules were changing every lockdown. It seemed to be a little bit different. The checking in the, all the sort of things that people were comfortable or not comfortable doing customers that is. Um, and then also sort of having to essentially restart the business every time we said, okay, the lockdown's ending in 72 hours or whatever it might be, trying to get your business as a food business back up and running and having enough stock to service the customers that are wanting to come through the doors is, very, is still very challenging, um, even without lockdown now, like with Omicron and the delivery issues are, are still there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, the... The stopping and the starting is is very taxing, very difficult. Many staff that were in hospitality then eventually decided that they don't want to be in hospitality, whether they were scared of catching COVID or they just wanted some more stable employment where they weren't shut down or out of work. Um, and so a number of people basically left hospitality and so seeked other jobs as well as the backpackers and the foreign visa holders that were part of the workforce in hospitality. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, more so recently with Omicron, as everyone else has sort of said, that people have to isolate. And that means that you don't have staff to fill shifts and it becomes very challenging. And having a young workforce after New Year's, pretty much 99% of them, got COVID, which left me uh, on my own because I luckily didn't get it. 
And the solution was either close the doors, which doesn't pay the rent, or I work on my own and do as many physical hours as possible to keep the doors open until the first staff member can come back and then the second and the third and try and get back to some sort of normality. And so, Max, do you have a number on what it's cost you? I tried to block that out. <laughs> uh, the government... The government funding has been fantastic. That's definitely helped keep the doors open as well as landlords um, giving substantial rent discounts. So the last year, in, not this year, uh, was it 2020, the funding and the rent discounts were amazing and it really helped keep the doors open. Last year was still okay, but it wasn't quite the same, but nowadays it's, um, it's non-existent and the landlords expect you to pay full rent. There's no discounts or government assistance for anything, which is, it is what it is. Um, but it is difficult when staff can test positive and get government assistance for lack of salary or lack of wage. Yet as a business owner, it's like, <laughs> you've got to keep on working to keep those doors open. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to... Peter and Eric, um, Peter Miglick and Eric, who have sort of slightly larger and different kinds of um, operations. Peter Miglick, what's been your experience and what's your um, impression particularly of the workforce pressures that Max yeah. has referenced? Yeah, um, I, I certainly share those concerns and I've seen the same thing in my business. And I, I should say um, to Max, my, my kids are very passionate customers of his business. <laughs> Incidentally, we don't get down there as much as they'd like to. But um, in, in, in terms of the labour, in terms of the labour market, um, well, well, we went from a time, uh, obviously, when COVID hit, when I had people sitting around filing paper clips, and thank goodness for JobKeeper because we we were heavy with labour, and um, our, our our view was very much um, uh, play in line to the state government guidelines in in terms of COVID. I wanted, um, I, I very much wanted to keep my employees safe, and. Uh, I also, from a selfish point of view, wanted them to be there when the times came, came good again. So I really invested heavily there and JobKeeper helped and we, we needed it and we got through. Um, now at the moment, um, we're, we're at the other end of, of that. We have, uh, um, in, in terms of my engineering business in particular and, and, and the franchise business, um, we see um, a lot of government stimulus uh, in the economy, particularly around construction and infrastructure. Um, and there's a lot happening in health and, that, and, 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 and really uh, our labour hire businesses um, booming with that. But, but it creates uh, different pressures, this, this surge type pressure. Um, so, so um, for instance, what we're seeing in the business where we would once upon a time advertise and market towards customers and clients, we're now just looking for staff. And if we've got the staff, we can do the work and we've got clients and customers lined up. It's a bit like rat tests and chemists. Hmm. They don't have to market them. As soon as they hit the shelves, they're gone. And, 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 and the labour, the, the, our labour hire business 
is a little bit the same. And I, I think the real challenge for government is trying to balance the supply and demand of it. The, the, the surge, we hear all about the surge and the stimulus, and, and there's a lot happening there. There's low interest rates and historically low unemployment. And, and while hospitality and retail and other businesses are still hurting, and there's no doubt that that pain is acute and it's still there, other businesses are absolutely booming and thriving. And, 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 and with that and the labour market, we, we, we can't fill roles. We, we've got good roles. We, we've upped our uh, salaries maybe 10 or 15%. I've got recruiters calling all my engineering staff on a weekly basis trying to knock them off. Um, and, and, and it's tough. We're probably one or two people down at the moment. So I think the challenge for government is, is balancing supply and demand. Mm. And that is through not having too much stimulus um, in, in certain areas um, and having good workforce supply. So um, a good number of people rolling, rolling out of universities or, or of other uh, uh, TAFEs and trades and everything else. So, so that it can kind of be a little bit more in balance. And the lull is just as bad. I, I must just reflect momentarily. Back on my early career, I, I, um, I finished university and became a Garbo. I had an engineering degree and became a Garbo and my mother cried. Um, but, but it was a great job and, and I really enjoyed it. But the problem was there was not enough work going on at that time. So I think for government, having a good pipeline of infrastructure projects that's balanced, that, that mm. uh, has long-term balance in it and trying to match that with the uh, labour market supply of people to do the jobs that is needed. And I've used the construction example, but I think it, it, it goes right across um, industry. I, th I, I think that is the challenge. Eric, I want to come to you. How, how does your experience gel with what you've heard from Peter and others? Oh, it's, it's very consistent. Uh, I, I should probably set the scene a little bit uh, before I talk about that. Um, I have moved into the city, but I grew up in, in Bay Morris. Um, so, and I've got a business um, in uh, Bay Road in Cheltenham. So I'm very much a Goldstein boy still. Um, so I've got a, I've got uh, businesses in different stages of evolution. The, the one in the construction industry is a mature company, it's 10 years old. But I've also got a little startup in the Edutech area. That's the one in Bay Road. The construction one, I'd very much like to just, you know, ditto what, what Peter just said. Inflation is becoming our number one problem. Um, so I don't know if people know, but a shipping container a year ago cost about $2,500. The most recent ones we bought in are $12,500. So we're, we're talking about a five times increase on every shipping container coming into the country. And so... You know, our cost of goods has gone up over 50% this year just to buy them. Um, part of that, the, so we've, you know, construction, and we, of course, received the benefit of the Home Builder Grant. Um, so we have a, a business called Site Tech that has uh, a higher temporary fencing and portable toilets, and you, and you see those sites all over the, all over the city. Um, so, of course, we've benefited from a boom in, in home building, but simultaneously what, what comes with that is inflation, and and I and I tend to agree with Peter that the balance hasn't been right there. So, um, you know, what we're finding now is both wages are going up significantly, but also just cost of goods and having to take price increases, which would just 
uh, done. The, the second thing really is just an inconsistency. So we got shut down by the Victorian government in September when they shut the whole construction industry down. Uh, that cost us a quarter of a million dollars that two weeks that, that they shut us down and we got $5,800 of compensation. So, you know, we didn't get uh, JobKeeper uh, because actually our business was doing quite well uh, with the construction industry. But when you shut a business down, you, you shut it down. You can't get any revenue in and you lose those sales. So, you know, it's been a bit of a double-edged sword, the whole thing, not to mention the on-off. And in this month, of course, staff, 30% of our staff have been away from COVID. Um, you know, my, my three kids all work at Coles and, and they're having the same experience. So it's everywhere right now. That's what's going on. Um, the, the other pressures, I think, you know, generally um, is this stop-start nature. I mean, one of the things that has been good is the smell loan that the government's put in which is essentially a loan for people impacted by COVID that allows you to do some things. So, so those sorts of things have been really good. But generally, this period's been probably the most challenging business period I've had in my 30-odd um, years in, in business, for sure. And certainly in my, my time as an entrepreneur, it's been the most challenging. Yeah. Uh, not to mention working from home and, you know, having kids around and then kids with COVID around and all the things you're going through right now, Zoe. So we've been through those as well. Yeah, yeah, with myself, my son and my daughter, all <clears throat> with COVID. So, you know, that's what's hap what happens in households with families, as, as everyone knows. Um, look, I'll get to Narelle momentarily, but I want to come to Peter Strong. Peter, you know, uh, look, you're used to hearing stories of hardship um, and challenge in small business. You know, anyone who starts a small business knows that it's not an easy road. How does it strike you, though, right now um, in terms of what people have experienced in the past in, in any era. You, you heard Eric say, you know, it's been the hardest time for his business that he's experienced. Is, that, is there a commonality in that? Oh, very much so. And let, let's say there's some businesses that have gone fantastic. Um, now, this last three months, and Eric said it, I think everybody else has said it, really weird. It hasn't been a lockdown, but it's been almost a bigger impact and in some cases a bigger impact but people have gone back to local shopping centers so the butchers have done quite well the local supermarkets have done well the pharmacies of course have done well so you've got this mix and so if i can say one of the issues we always have and i work mainly at the federal level but i certainly did a lot with the states during this time is getting people to understand that difference between businesses and then it's not a one-size-fits-all response so they might see the butchers going quite well and say oh look business is fine and you think well no the the butchers are fine unless you're in a cbd and then you're not fine so it's that story and and this is where just those stories just then have been i mean fantastic to take back to to policy and say the world isn't like you think it is and seriously a lot of them don't get it they're good people but they don't get it and you need to respond differently to different um, sectors to different communities and you need to discover how to do that and I know Sue Barrett and I had a great conversation the other day about this empowerment of local community to come up with what they believe is right and I remember early on in the first lockdown we were saying the government should help communities come up with a response for when they have a COVID outbreak but they still tried to or did manage it from a central uh, process Yet it's the people, like you just said, it's the families that have been impacted. Getting that that uh, story out about landlords, so we've had really good 
good stories about landlords, but if you're in one of the biggest landlords, um, Westfields or whatever, the stories aren't going to be good. And it's that understanding of that. So if I can say a lot of what we've argued about over the last two years has been what we've argued about forever, make workplace relations easier. So in a crisis, I know the rules. I, I know that I can employ this person and I'm not going to have trouble in a, in a year's time. So let's, let's make it easy to, to, for the small business person and their employees. This is what we've always said. If it's, if it's easy for Eric, it's going to be easy for the employee to understand. And these are the sorts of things that I hope we've learned out of this is that it's not one size fits all. I mean, that's a terrible story about the cost of containers. I hadn't heard mm. that one before. Mm. And you get that all around, the, all around the country. So the other thing is when we listen to the people we just listened to, it's we have the capacity to manufacture stuff in this country, little stuff. People will build bigger companies from it. So if I can say, Zoe, the enemy of small business, in my opinion, is bloody laissez-faire economists. The people who say, let the market decide that the best will survive and the rest will just go bankrupt and we don't care. And it's rubbish. I, it just makes me so angry. And, you know, you've got mainly in, in the leads, you've got too many of them. You've certainly got them in labour. Um, you've certainly got them all around the place because it's nice and easy to be lazy with your policy. But the solution belongs with community. We used to be a very good country um, back in the Hawke-Keating era. Um, we were the best in the world at empowering communities to respond to economic crisis. And we've got to somehow or other get back to that. that what about Narelle? Yeah, no, that's great, Peter. Thank you for your input. Narelle, you, you deal with a lot of small businesses in, in Goldstein, and I'm really interested in your perspective on kind of what Peter said, that obviously there's some commonality, but then different business sectors have different issues. So, you know, how do you overlay a policy position on that? Or what sort of what, what can you do when people have very specific issues? Can you just speak to us about some of the the sorts of situations that you've been encountering? Um, definitely 100% agree with what Peter was stating when he said it's not all one size fits all. That's mm. definitely what we've experienced. And from the start of um, COVID and the lockdowns, we were quite proactive and we contacted all our clients. So, you know, working from home for us is quite easy. We're a paperless office, but we thought we'd try and support all our clients. So we were often on the phone with our clients daily. Uh, we were there to support them with lots of different funding, all the grants that came out at that time. And we definitely noticed quite quickly that no matter whether a client was struggling severely or not, um, the funding that was that came out quite early definitely didn't represent the condition of that client, the, the struggles that they were having. So it definitely wasn't um, probably well thought out at the beginning. Completely understand the government tried to get something out there straight away to try and get funds out there to reassure businesses. Um, but when looking back, some of our clients had done financially well, which didn't actually need certain funding. They were they accessed it because they were able to. Um, and then there's those that are still struggling to this day, and especially in the hospitality industry, um, those in CBD, those that have that are at university campuses. Um, there's no students there. They're still basically receiving minimal income and not currently receiving any sort of support or funding. Um, and there's many of these businesses. Uh, stuck with some very large ATO debts. So basically, they've had no income. A lot of the current loans they did have when they started business, they've pushed them further along. So the debt hasn't reduced. They've now taken a lot more debt with the ATO. 
um, they're struggling and they're emotionally struggling and mentally struggling. And a lot of them, I'm not sure whether they'll succeed. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting that you raise the issue of the ATO. And, you know, I guess, you know, we've spent half an hour, <coughs> excuse me, talking about um, what the issues are. And, you know, I think a, a lot of what's been said will be no surprise to anyone on, on this call. Um, but I guess the question is, well, what can we do? You know, what, what would make a difference? Now, Narelle, what, what's your thinking about the role that the ATO could play, particularly given the amount of tax debt mm. that a lot of these businesses will be carrying, which then affects the ability to get loans and, and all, all right. sorts of, yeah. you know, other yeah, pressures. Yeah, we can't take a loan these days when ATO debt. Right. So what, what are our options there, you know, if we were to think smartly and strategically about what the ATO could do? Definitely. I mean, initially to help support the, the businesses that are more struggling more at the moment is deferring any um, request of payment of ATO debt. The, the ATO is currently already chasing debts for all businesses. So they've engaged already calling, sending out debt demands, even those that are in payment arrangements. So they're already actively chasing up debts no matter what industry you're in. So I think, number one, I think they need to review an industry that the business is in, if they're in hospitality or someone that's you know, still impacted heavily, they should be um, putting some of those loans on hold. How that impacts, you know, for future lending and what to do in the future, it's such a difficult question. I really don't have an answer to that because all industries mm. are different and whether mm. some of these businesses will succeed. They have introduced some simplified liquidation rules, but that doesn't really help the individual. Yes, some people may better get out of some debt, but where do they go from there? They've lost out. They have no future business. You know, their retirement plans are completely changed. Even with businesses, and I do a bit with valuations, a lot of these businesses have been struggling for two years. It's not just their income now. It's their future retirement, the future value of their business. What's their business going to be worth and they still can't have a normalised income capacity coming through? So there's so many more challenges in the future and the long term with a lot of these business, small business owners. Mm. Peter Strong, can I come I back to, to you on that? Much, yeah, Sorry, go, can go I ahead. just add? Yeah. One of the things when I first got into that job that was getting an understanding that small businesses are people. It really took some time um, and there's still others out there that don't think that. So we have Safe Work Australia who told me, the CEO told me that the self-employed person is legally responsible for their own mental health, which is crazy, of course. But you've still got people who just don't understand what we just heard across here and, and what these people are doing for other families, let alone their own, um, and you're, you're in the same situation, that they would think, Zoe, that you are responsible for your own mental health legally. What does that even mean? So you still get some people that, that really don't like to think of, of us, small business people, as human beings. It gets in the way of workplace relations, et cetera. There's got to be a change of attitude towards that. And I've had a great relationship more recently with Sally McManus and others about that understanding that if there's five people in the workplace, they all count. Mm. And mm. The, the, the pandemic has taught us that most of us get on with our employees and they get on with us. I mean, that's, you know, there's always horror stories out there, but it's been really interesting to think, you know, it's not that broken, but gee, there's a group of people not getting the attention that they should get. Sorry, I'm, I'm, on my grandstand now. 
No, no. I, I, I mean, I think also that it's more than that too, because um, small business is community, and the big companies will be there, but they're not necessarily the ones who are sponsoring the local football team or, you know, donating sausages to the sausage sizzle at the, you know, soccer game on a Sunday or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, I mean, so we, I'll, I'll be quite up to this. I've had a great debate with Saul Eslake, you know, Saul, yeah. the, the economist. And he, he and I, he came out and said that we concentrate too much on small business. And he said, but, you know, you get a tax deduction for those sausages. So mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. But, most, most of the sports clubs I know and the charities at the local level, the president and or the, the um, treasurer are self-employed. You can't claim the time. So as you say, it's, it's community. It really is. Sorry, but people I saw less like still don't get it. I'll, so I those, go, those, yeah, sorry, um, go ahead, Eric. Yeah. Those big businesses were small businesses once. You know, yeah, my parents arrived in Australia in 1961 from Holland on a ship with no money. They bought a house in Beaumaris because it was one of the cheapest suburbs in, in Melbourne at the time, right? Uh, and they got an education here and they started businesses and, and eventually, but that's what we have to do. If, if, if government is successful, people are going to have the opportunity to create a business and create a life here. And so for me, you know, all those big businesses were little ones. And, and they don't survive as big businesses forever either. If you look at the stock market 30 years ago, it's very different to today. So we should foster small business because it's a, such an engine of innovation and, and, uh, and growth. And so I don't think anyone should ever forget that. Yep. There's some comments coming in on the chat. Uh, Tony Middleditch makes the point that a tax break is of no use if you're not making any profit. And I totally understand that. I wanted to go back to Sue Barrett, who's been monitoring what's in the chat. Sue, what sort of themes are we seeing coming through there? Well, I think, well, there's lots of fierce agreement with what's actually being said, which is which is really interesting and great. Um, I also, too, there were some things um, that came up. In fact, Tony made a point in, he, in his notes before he, uh, when he registered, but also tonight, that one of the challenges when we were in hard lockdown was that there are people out there operating illegally and uh, they were just going about their business anyway. And so people who were following the rules and, you know, doing things, you know, correctly actually lost custom and lost business and lost customers as a result. And, you know, that's a real challenge in terms of, if you want to call it sort of the regulation of this kind of thing too. And the other thing as well, it was really about how to actually manage and, and, and uh, work with customers too. One of the questions that came to me in a direct message was, you know, how are these businesses, particularly those that are in-person businesses like Tessa's businesses, like Max as well, how are they finding managing the policing of masks and getting people to, you know, check in and show their vaccinations? Because that's also being thrust onto small business as well to actually also police people's, um, you know, compliance, if you like, with the whole COVID um, saga. So they're just some of the things that have popped up. I'm happy for people to uh, obviously uh, have a go at that. Yeah, thanks, Sue. And I want to come back to Max and Tess. So, Max, I'll, I'll come to you first. You've been sitting there listening to the discussion. I'm curious um, about your views around, for example, you know, the ATO um, giving a bit of leeway um, for example, would that make a difference to you? You know, how, how are you planning uh, as we sit here in the last week of January 2022, not quite knowing what the year brings? Yeah, the tax break is good, as mentioned, if you're actually making money. 
Um, so to me, it makes the tax break is not of any benefit whatsoever because in this current situation, <laughs> we're not making money. So it's good for some, but it's not good for me. Um, to me, it would be more beneficial to look at um, the shopping strips and sort of re-evaluating where the suburban shopping strip sort of lives these days because, yes, maybe the butcher is thriving and maybe the supermarkets are thriving, but there's many businesses that have shut down, leaving vacancies in every shopping strip around Melbourne. Um, and that then brings less foot traffic to the street and creates this sort of snowball effect. So... Um, the yeah the tax benefit or the tax break is is really no benefit to me whatsoever. But so what what would I mean? Do you have in your head what would make a difference, Max? Um, it's a really tricky question to answer. I guess the biggest pain point for me at the moment is that uh, I lease the building that I'm in, and the lease is a is a binding contract, and I have no intention of sort of doing the wrong thing by my landlords are going into some sort of liquidation and walking away. But um, I think things need to be re-evaluated now that we have moved into a new stage of, of COVID and people are operating differently. They're buying differently. They're doing different things. They're going away in different ways. They're working from home, whether that be their primary residence or perhaps their, their holiday home. Um, so I think for me, the, the biggest thing would be to sort of have a re-evaluation of what outgoing should be in today's market um, because after labour, rent is, is, is a huge outgoing and that hasn't changed. Yes, it did have a, 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 a um, discount period, but that's been extended now till February or March with negotiations with the landlord and, of course, not all landlords are very helpful and you have to disclose personal information about how much your turnover has uh, declined. But unless you want to get lawyers involved, they're not always going to say, yeah, sure, that's what the law says and that's what I'm going to do. Um, so having to have sort of difficult discussions with landlords uh, with no real guidance apart from what you can read on online. And I know the small business has... Um, a helpline that you can ring and there's uh, advisors there but at the end of the day like when you're dealing with landlords it's not it's just never that easy yeah it's interesting that you you raise that and because there's been a bit of conversation going on in the chat and I know I spoke with one of the peak bodies about this last week where are you getting your information from if you need to find something out about the current <laughs> the Facebook status groups. of your business. Yeah, how do you find out? Where do you go? Uh, look, I try not to read the news too much because that just sends you down a rabbit hole. Um, so there are like Facebook groups with tens of thousands of members that ask really stupid questions. But occasionally you'll get a nugget there that sort of goes, oh, actually, that's, that's relevant to me. And then you do a bit of Googling or, or click on a link that might be there. But, yeah, I, I stopped reading the news and, and website. And not only that, I don't have the time when, mm-hmm. when you're trying to run a business. Um, it, I'm not working from home. I don't have time to have a coffee and jump on my laptop and, and sort of 
read up on the latest of latest rules and regulations. Yeah. So Tess, I'll come to you. Um, you know, obviously one of the most sort of pre prescient issues currently is the availability of rats. Um, would free rats, freely available rats, make a big difference in your situation? Yeah, it actually probably would. Yeah, I mean, the rules have changed even in the last few days around being a close contact, and and that means that that our staff, if they are a close contact, uh, they have to test for five days straight and have negative tests. They can still work. So you know that that would that would be a, a big help. Um, yeah, I guess I guess um, the the ongoing you know, supply of PPE. I, I just don't know when we're ever going to need to stop or be able to stop wearing um, N95 masks, for instance. Mm. And um, you, you, the, the cleaning of, of, of the beds and the, the, the sanitation that, that we have just with every single patient that comes through the door, it's just, it's relentless. It's, it's you know, the towel laundering. It's, it's they're little tiny things, but they, they add up. And um, I guess you know, every business is so very different. And um, I, I guess for us as a, as a business, it, it would be nice to have um, be looked at, not individually, but I guess as a, as a private healthcare um, provider, um, and we have different, different sort of needs. And I, I guess that, that they're not going to change. Um, and how long can you keep going for? So, and, and the other thing is, in terms of business support, um, there, there's just, there's nothing in place for us with, with staff furloughing and, and us having to, to continually um, cancel, you know, days and days of, of, of full books. Mm. Yeah. So, so in, your, in your situation, Tess, um, because obviously there's been a lot of discussion about lack of available workforce in things like hospitality and, and retail. It, does that apply yeah. in the same way to you? Weirdly, it, it actually does. We can't. So we're reasonably well staffed, but we need, we probably have six or seven um, part-time to full-time physios, but we, we need another full-time physio and we just, We've probably been advertising for about six months, and we just there's just no one around. And mm. and I know the same is true with GPs. Um, it's it's you know healthcare across the board. So it's every industry, but it's I can't work out why that is. I, I don't I, I don't know whether it's um, the contractor um, the way that, that that people are paid in 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 our line of 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 business is it's often contractors. So, um, you know, whether they've gone into bigger companies and they're sort of, they're more buffered with, with mm. bigger companies, they've come out of, of healthcare altogether. I, I don't I, know. I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about wages and Peter Miglick, can I come back to you just on the workforce issues? Um, you know, we saw inflation figures come out this week, three and a half percent, which is way outside the reserve banks level of comfort but also mm. the wage um, increase over the year was 2.2 percent so there's obviously a big imbalance there yeah. how, what's your read on how what that means for small business trying to attract staff when yeah. big business is going to have more money to throw around in terms of salaries 
Well, well, well certainly what, what I've done is try to swim further upstream. I'm getting active in recruitment myself rather than delegate, delegating it, which is, which is what I used to do. Um, and, and in terms of graduates and, the, um, and, and just the inflation around that, I, I remember taking on a young graduate engineer for um, $55,000 and he was very grateful to have the job and that was fantastic. And now I'm getting a little bit of, oh, you know, I want 75 or 85 and uh, what are you going to do for me? And, and I'm almost begging them to, to uh, take the job. So, so it, it, it's definitely there. And in terms of big business, yes, the bigger brands do suck some of the graduates out of the market and, and suck a lot of the good labour out of the market. The big brand attracts people and, and they see a career with that big brand and, and a small business is... Uh, well, it's smaller and, and, and perhaps less attractive. Um, so, so we do genuinely fight that. And, but what we try to do is just have a, um, a more reason, uh, try to have a very reasonable, flexible um, workforce. And uh, yes, we, we uh, are fighting a similar battle as has been discussed uh, earlier and, and, and particularly by Tessa. We, we are understaffed at the moment. We could dearly do with two or three more staff in the business. And we've been advertising for the same roles for months and just yeah. can't find them. So, so let's is- talk about this. Like, you know, one of the things that's being mm. debated is um, immigration, particularly, mm. high, high, you know, incentivised high-skilled immigration. And, yeah. and the other thing is taking the limits off the hours that people can work if they're on a, a limited visa arrangement. would I'm interested in the show of hands from the room, and you can put it in the chat if you like, um, whether th- those are things that you would support. Peter Miglick, what what's your yeah. view of those sorts of strategies? I, I don't see any reason in a tight labour market to limit people's hours. It would be better for everyone and the economy if those limitations were removed. Um, but but I, I, I still um, respect what Max was saying, that there are some industries still hurting a lot, but in those that are um, doing a little bit better and, and, and actually are in high demand, let's face it, some industries at the moment are in very high demand. Um, I I don't see the need to have any limitation on hours. And I would also support um, uh, having a good consistent stream of skilled migration. Uh, I think uh, those two things in tandem could could help ease um, the, 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 the burdens we have. Mm. There's a, a comment from Michelle in the chat. Childcare costs mean so many talented young women exit the workforce. They should be incentivised within their choice to remain employed or to return to work if they want to. There's a really interesting article by Alan Kohler today in the New Daily. Um, maybe one of the campaign team can throw that into the chat, which talks about the circular nature of childcare um, because, of course, childcare workers aren't paid much either, so therefore the amount... Um, it, it's sort of a, a circular situation in terms of how much people can pay for childcare and then how much the workers get paid. So it's sort of self-limiting in a way. Eric, can I come back to you in regard mm. to this idea of sort of immigration, um, freeing up visa workers and also high-skilled immigration? What are your thoughts about that? 
Uh, I mean, I'm all for it. So in our, I mean, if, if you if you the press tends to dominate with uh, white collar retail work shortages, but if you jump into the space of blue collar just for a second, um, you know, it's 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 crazy short of workers. And you know, from our point of view, we have a lot of big Tongan guys. You know, they're really strong fellas. They play rugby and 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 they're perfect for what we do. And we would love to bring in a batch of them right now. And I know they're struggling because of the tsunami. Uh, so that, you know, those sorts of things would be would be just absolutely fantastic uh, because the blue collar sector is, is, is kind of under siege. And I, I wish, if I could say one other thing, I just wish the government was a bit strategic. Um, so, you know, I've, I had a business, I've had two businesses in the solar industry, right? Um, and I remember simultaneously a few years ago, the government um, announced, you know, massive expansion of solar and then they slashed TAFE places almost at the same, like it was a year prior, they'd slashed all the government, the TAFE spots, which was training solar installers. And then they put the, put the foot on the gas on the soft. You know, I don't, you know for me, the Chinese, if, if, if we can learn a few things from them, they pick some strategic industries and then they think completely holistically about it. And they go, right, if solar is going to double or triple, what do we need to do? We need to create a workforce around that. How do we do that? And this is completely absent. And there's so many examples of where the government is, is strategically pushing certain industries but hasn't actually thought it through in terms of workforce and other things like that. So you know, those would be the sorts of things I'd be pushing. But the other one would be health and immigration and health. You know, there's nurses all over the world um, that would love to come to Australia. And, and, you know, from everything I'm hearing, we could really use them right now. So, yes, a bit of strategy would be very helpful at the federal level. Peter Strong, can I come back to you about this immigration issue? And I know, um, Cosboa, I know you're not there anymore, but Cosboa has been doing a lot of work on these incentivising um, ideas and, and sort of lifting limits. What, what, what's the potential there, do you think? Oh, the, the potential's enormous. Uh, what I was going to say, because obviously people are much more experienced on, on a day-to-day basis, the issue, and this is where, Zoe, you get in, this is the fun, and talking to Zali, Zali Stegel and uh, Jackie Lambie and Independence, is they say they get visits from people and they give Cosbo a compliment saying, we walk in representing the people here today, so we talk about reality, but they get others that walk in with their ideology. This is the real issue. We talk about what's in the paper. So Labor is really, really struggling with uh, letting immigration happen because the unions don't want immigration, a whole range of things happening there. And then, of course, you've got the other side, as I say, don't start me again on laissez-faire economists. So that's the issue, I think, is in, in, and, you know, my job was to walk around Parliament House a lot and you're forever confronting ideology or a vested interest of a big business or something or a union and when you sit down with, with the police, they, they get it quite often, they get it. But there's other things there. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to get political, but, you know, being an independent is so different when you don't have to toe the party line. And it means that they can be more about reality. I mean, Jackie Lamb is not about reality. Tell me somebody who is. Um, mm. that's, that's the thing that, that I've spent my whole time with is coming up with new ways of expressing reality and new ways of, fighting the people with the money and the ideology and, you know, poor old Saul Leslake, et cetera. That, that's the issue that I've, that, that's my world, is hearing from everybody around this Zoom call today, that's reality. That's what's mm. happening. These people aren't ideologues. They don't hate or dislike or whatever. 
they're people running businesses that live in a community that understand other people. And that's why, and again, talking to Sue Barrett, that community-driven response, is, it's got to come back. And then we can push the, the zealots and the ideologues out where they belong, you know, from the back blocks. Mm. Maybe if I could just bring in some stuff that I've been reading, but also Thanks, too, just from my experience as well. One of the, I think someone mentioned strategy before, it'd be lovely to have a strategy, wouldn't it? Because uh, we don't seem to, we seem to have lots of fits and starts and short-termism, which is one of the biggest problems with the ideology that Peter's talking about. And the other thing too is about supply chains, but also sourcing locally. Um, this is one of the biggest challenges with sales, you know, with, with um, small business, we don't have huge sales teams to go out and lobby and do all sorts of things with other businesses. And so it's about having, you know, thinking about how do we actually have, um, you know, big businesses, federal governments, et cetera, sourcing locally from really innovative, amazing businesses that we actually have in this country, you know, small businesses who are bringing new innovations and ideas one of the other challenges that we have is a lot of the people who are in the positions of power have wedded relationships and they're not open necessarily to new ideas, where, which is what small business can also bring as well. So some of the things that have been coming through, as I said, is about sourcing locally, also being realistic about the timing of businesses. A lot of small businesses are often having to pay you know, um, um, their uh, taxes or whatever, they're out of their current um, sort of cash flows and things because they've been caught short through the pandemic. They don't have, you know, big cash, you know, stocks of cash if they've been caught short. Um, there's also things about suspension of rules around trading while insolvent. Could that actually be given some special leeway given the, the, the unusual circumstances we're in? Also, too, um, looking at the whole supply chain disruptions we've been talking about. And again, it's about thinking about small business policy a lot of the people uh, that uh, Peter was talking about who are the sort of uh, the party politicians, how many of them have ever run a business, let alone a small business? And do they have any empathy or understanding for what that's like? So I think there's a number of things coming through here. You mentioned the childcare one as well, but also to um, this whole short-termism versus long-term strategy and stewardship and ultimately thinking about the system of community, business, economy. They're the sorts of things that need to be studied more or understood more so we can all work together. That's just some of the stuff that's coming through and I've tried to summarise for you. Thank you, Sue. And there was a, a really interesting interview this week on Radio National Breakfast actually about uh, local production of rats. Um, Alex, I know you shared that with me. Perhaps you could pop that into the chat or Ange. Um, it, it's just a good example of... Some, some sort of forward thinking around local manufacturing and perhaps a, a shift of thinking about how we could actually make that happen. Um, Max, I want to come back to you just on a sort of a, a couple of specifics that have been suggested by the COSBOA, the Council of Small Business um, Organisations Australia, suggesting, as I said, temporary visa holders being able to work more, um, encouraging over 65s to work, formalised work placements to help people develop experience, for example, or perhaps a bookkeeping grant, a subsidised bookkeeping grant to take some of the administrative burden off small business. Do any of those things resonate with you? Uh, me personally, probably not so much. Um, uh, I guess, luckily for me, I can do the majority of the kitchen component where I guess the majority of hospitality industries have to employ chefs that are either locally 
trained or trained overseas and working with the visa. So for me personally, probably not so much, but definitely in the hospitality in general, um, the visa for allowing people to come back and work is it would be greatly um, appreciated. Um, there's, I guess for small business in hospitality, there's not that much bookkeeping uh, mm. costs associated these days with online accounting software and stuff like that. A lot of people are doing that themselves. And what the overall cost saving annually would be, I, don't, I can't imagine it would be that high. Max, do you have anything um, to add? Because, you know, I, I wonder whether we've sort of ruined our reputation a bit with um, highly skilled international workers, given that they got no support early in the pandemic and a lot were put in a position where they had to go home, especially hospitality workers. Do you think that sort of now that we need those people back, they're going to be reluctant to come back because they fear that they, there'll be no safety net for them? Uh, it's, I don't know how to answer that one because Australia is still very, um, it, it's very much a popular country to come and visit and work and, and live in. So I think there'd still be many, many foreign chefs and, and sommeliers and, and people in hospitality wanting to come to Australia and work if they can live here. Um, so I don't know whether the lack of support may or may not stop them from coming here. Hmm. If anyone wants to make a direct comment on camera, please put your hand up um, and Sue can help moderate that. I'll, I'll come back to Narelle momentarily just on the bookkeeping issue. Narelle, do you think that there's any merit in sort of subsidising administration to some extent? Um, I agree with Max, probably not, because a lot of businesses with software out these days is not a great cost. And there was some subsidies and grants that were issued um, during COVID last year for similar things like that, for software packages, um, enhancing getting more technology, and they weren't really taken on by most of our clients. Mm. I think a, a greater saving and greater benefit would have been, you know, a reduction of an ATO debt, so looking at, you know, the interest-free or even maybe just writing off some of the debt with some of the smaller businesses, depending on the industry. We have had that happen in the past with, with some businesses which had struggled and um, debt has been written off. So surely they're capable of doing things like that for certain industries. But I think some of those grants bookkeeping, it hasn't really been taken on many of our clients. And I don't think it's going to be as valuable. Yeah. So there's a comment in the chat, just getting back to rats. Alan says a company in Queensland has been making rats and exporting. And if you, Scroll back up into the chat. Alex has put that interview from Radio National Breakfast in there, which is um, basically with an, an Australian rat manufacturer who speaks to some of the limitations. Noel, I think you wanted yeah. to say something. Where are you? Just unmute yourself, Noel. Just unmute yourself, Noel. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, the one thing I've heard come through this which seems to have a a, new, a unique value is this concept of community-driven response. Now, I've heard it just used, and you know, I'd sort of assumed I, I understood what that meant. I'd like an explanation, particularly, say, from Peter, who was very strong on it, but what is a community-driven response that could be driven by us? So, you're right. I'll, I'll, I mean, very quickly when we've done it before, you bring the business community together 
and you empower them with a secretariat. So it's not very expensive. I mean, you give them a secretariat, one or two people, normally two, uh, uh, to write plans up, but you bring people like you in and you say, what do you think needs to happen in this community um, to improve employment, to do what, whatever? And people, you can imagine this group coming together and talking about Goldstein. It would be extraordinary. And you'd probably argue among yourselves or whatever, but then that secretariat, will go off and, off and seek grants. There's plenty of grants at federal and state level, but you don't have the time to write the applications. And no, you shouldn't. But you, we should listen to your ideas and how you want to do it. And it, it's wonderful to see. When we did it once, I had one group of, of social workers come up to me because I was the public servant back in 1990 that was setting these things up. And they said, this is fantastic. The business communities come to us and said, how do we look after youth unemployment? And I said, they've always cared about that, but they haven't had the time to get someone to go and do it for them. So it's about giving you the opportunity to sit down with the other group once a month and then go back and run your business, right? Nobody should stop you doing that. And then someone goes off and starts planning it and putting it together, challenging you. This is the other thing is we brought experts out from other places who would challenge you and say, well, why do you want to do that? Do you really think you can set up a rat manufacturing in Goldstone? I mean, I mean seriously. And I, I, what community can do is just wonderful. It's just wonderful. But they've got to get to you lot first and hear what you want and what's stopping them. Could we that do it for sense. this election? Could we do it for this election? <laughs> well, we've been pushing it long and hard. I'm talking to Labor about it because they, it was under Hall competing that they had what where Australia became. I mean, that's what took me around the world with the World Bank, et cetera, is, is doing that. So it should be part of this election without a doubt. By the way, one of the biggest enemies we've got is federal treasury. I had a fellow from treasury before I left this, the, the job who, um, so you'd love this, he's he, a really good bloke, like they're all nice people, but he said, Peter, you, you know how small business think? And I looked at him, I thought, you, you're going to tell me how small business think? I mean, I don't know how small business think because there's so many of us, right? And then he told me. And I thought, what do you know someone that actually thinks like that? It was bizarre. So that's what we're up against, is there's people who think they really do know better than all of us on this call put together. Can I just, throw, sorry. Can I just throw in two things to think about for future as well? There's a thing called, you know, onshoring and greenshoring and circular economy. And there are things that we can actually, when if we start to look at how we can recycle, reuse and all of that, there's models already in practice and in place. And that is really community driven as well, where you're looking at how businesses can all work in coordination with each other back to supply chains. I'm just leaving that as a thought bubble for future reference, but it's something that's already in existence and it can work and operate. So these sorts of ideas as well. Um, John Brady's popped up his hand. So John. Go ahead, John. Good evening, team. Good evening, Zoe. Um, you talk about local business um, and small business. Uh, Switzerland is the number one innovative country on the planet for the last 12 or 13 years consistently. Australia ranks 25th. The reason why, why Switzerland is so good at being innovative is that it moves ideas through universities into commercial ventures very smoothly. And its government is uh, designed around, and the, the, uh, the incentives are designed around moving new ideas, new, new concepts, and new businesses through uh, to a commercial standing very quickly. We don't have that here, and we struggle. And so new ideas, new businesses that start in Goldstein have to seek 
uh, venture capital and the venture capital pool is very shallow in Australia. And so therefore many new ideas actually don't get off the ground or they struggle because they don't have the cash flow and the working capital to get past that initial phase. Can I add something to that, sorry? Uh, sure. Um, so yeah. um, I, I spent a couple of hours at um, the Royal Brighton Yacht Club with the Bayside Business Hub back in November and the energy in the room from a bunch of entrepreneurs starting new businesses was quite amazing. Like they came along to learn how to run a business. And um, for me, one of the things that you could bring here is I, I actually think um, small business and even medium-sized business owners are so busy that actually helping them with some business coaching um, would be incredibly valuable um, in my view and how to run a business, how to come up with ideas, you know. And on that community one, you know, my first business, I was living in Black Rock and we started a solar company. That business in four years employed 55 people in Goldstein, you know. Mm -hmm. So the, the, when you get entrepreneurs and you support them with coaching and advice, it, it's a job creation machine. And, and I really, and, and to speak about innovation is, it's always going to be, for me, the, the smaller ones that are going to do most of the innovation because they're the most, they're the most risk appetite, right? So, so I think somewhere in the education area to support them with business coaching would be fantastic and just see what this incredible pool of talent in the Bayside area could, could come up with. I'd be, I'd be pretty excited about that. Right, I, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good point. Sorry, Sue. I was just going to say that because um, from some of our registration questions that were answered, uh, one person said, well, uh, in answer to the question, what help do you need? Um, they said, I, I need help with social media because I do not have this skill. And I thought, well, I can probably train you to do that in, in two hours. You know, um, there, there's a lot of skill sets that we have if we're sort of sharing across our community and supporting each other um, in, in ways that we can grow. Sue, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, when COVID hit in 2020, um, what I noticed a lot was that a lot of people weren't ready. They didn't have a clean databases of client, like good quality data. So they couldn't contact clients to stay in touch. They also didn't know how to sell well, didn't know how to engage and work with people. So a lot of people who start small businesses, not all, but many are really good technicians of what they do, but they're not good at this marketing and sales business. They don't know how to sell themselves well. They don't know how to set up marketing. And we've got to manage our visibility and stay engaged. The other thing I noticed too, depending on the type of business, and some, this is obviously, they're quite specific, but a lot of businesses didn't have a plan B or C. And so if a certain market had dried up, that was it. They didn't have other ways of looking at how to adapt what they can do to different markets. So back to Eric's point about education, a lot of people, as I said, start businesses who are technically good at what they do, but not commercially savvy. And I think if we can provide education and support around the commerciality of things, how to sell, how to market, and also how to lead and engage and work with people, um, we can actually create very prosperous, healthy businesses, whether you want to grow large or stay small, but you still have to know how to do those things, not just be a good technician. Thank you, Sue. Did anyone else want to add to the conversation? I can see who's got their hand up there. Michael. Hi, Zoe and everybody. Um, I pretty much, I did work in big business and now I work with mainly a small, medium-sized business. Just a couple of points to make as observations. One of my daughters worked for a national firm, or still does, had to renegotiate all the leases for all their outlets. 
because they couldn't have anybody in the shops. The small landlords, they were quite happy to negotiate. They were prepared to do it. The problem they had with the big shopping centres, and you, you can pretty well guess who they are. So that was, that was one side of it. Recently, we had a family. The, the, the wife owns a hairdressing salon. The husband was a handyman. Uh, the son worked in the factory and the daughter was in hospitality. She came back with, with COVID. So they all had to isolate. So they had to get other people to try and find back tests for them. But the worst one with the hairdressing where she had to go and cancel all those appointments. Mm. So maybe someone else picks them up. So they're out of action. But she only needs to get, or one of the family needs to get COVID again, and she's got to cancel another week. So mm. there should be support there. The landlords don't understand, um, in, in their cases and a few others, about the government help and everything else. They fight it along the way. Um, going back to the grants in March 2020, we've got some businesses who've got the grant, but they were doing well. They had one bad month and they picked up the grants and they, they're in the um, construction and earth moving, doing very well. But the other, some of the other places in hospitality just had to close down. And then that indecision about you could go up to June or September, and then we changed the way we judge giving you job keeper or job support from the federal government, just threw people around as to mm. what they should be doing. And then they just laid off their staff. So I remember speaking about, I think it was 15, 20 years ago to Fran Bailey, who was the minister for um, small mm -hmm. business then. And we had a very good talk. And I said, small business minister should be in cabinet because of all the people that are supported and employed in small business. She said, I couldn't agree more. She said, I and others before me have held the position have been trying to get that point across, Labor and Liberal, but it just doesn't register. Mm. And the attitude that came out for many others is governments like dealing with big unions and big business, and they don't care about the small stuff, not realising. And that the rats test, uh, friends of ours, uh, about 12 months ago, went to the government, they're in the medical industry, offering to produce the rats tests. They just couldn't even get a look in the door. Our offering mm. to do it, bring it up. They were just rebuffed. So you, you've constantly got that. And I've had my meetings with uh, Tim Wilson. I have correspondence with him. He does, I mean, we know he doesn't get it because he really doesn't get it. And then I think Peter made the comment before about friends who are working in treasury or they're working in big corporations. They'll go, up, go to a restaurant and say, oh, that restaurant's doing well now, aren't they, isn't it? Yeah, they're fine. I said, no, no, you've got to make up for 18 months. Now, the ATO yeah. at the moment, I've got contacts in the debt collection side. They're going very quiet. I get a list every day of companies being wound up or businesses being wound up. There's none from the tax office. There's other businesses closing up other businesses because they just haven't got the funds, but none from the tax office. And the, the strong suspicion amongst uh, my group of accountants is the government's just holding off till after the election because otherwise there's going to be a big domino effect. So if you take me down, then the people I owe money to, they'll go down and so on and forth. So they don't want that before the election. Mm, Michael, thank you very much for making your point. And Peter put in the chat, remote working is another big trend that will not disappear after Great. COVID. I'm going to close this conversation now, and it's been wonderful. Thank you so much to everyone for your generosity, your honesty, 
it's really productive um, to be able to have these kinds of conversations as a community, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much to our panel, Tess Hines, Max Shatkin, Peter Miglick, Norel Pezzavento, Eric Zimmerman and Peter Strong. It's just, yeah, it's a pleasure to have been here with you tonight, and I'll hand back to Sue to close. Thanks, Sue. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria, 